Hi there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship. Today, Pastor Rod Heppel is preaching part three of our series in the Book of Ruth, entitled Ruth, A Love Story of Redemption. Enjoy! I know that you've probably heard that next Sunday is our farewell Sunday for Rob and Diana Shaw, and we're going to be having that barbecue following the service outside. If you want to join us, I would really invite you to join us. However, I want to promote the whole appreciation fund for Rob and Diana and their family. They're going to have some moving expenses, and we really want to bless them. And there's ways that you can go about that. You could drop off a check made out to Sardis Fellowship and drop it off at the office. You could use the debit machine, which is in the foyer, or you could go online to sardisfellowship.com and under giving, you'll see in the drop-down menu where it says the Shaw Appreciation Fund, and you can give using Canada Helps, using your MasterCard online there. As well, you could e-transfer. Just put in the note that it's for the Rob and Diana Shaw Appreciation Fund. So I hope that you support that generously, above and beyond your regular giving to Sardis Fellowship, as we want to bless them for their many years of service to our congregation. Well, today is the final sermon in our little short series that we've done on the book of Ruth. Ruth, a love story of redemption. That's what we titled it. It's a love story on two different levels. One is on a human level between a man named Boaz and a woman named Ruth. And the way in which God weaves this story together, right? But it's also a divine story about what God is up to. His plan of redemption, his preservation of the line of not only King David, but the Messiah, Jesus. And so it's this love story of redemption on two levels, one human and the other divine. For those of you who are in business or real estate, you're going to enjoy this next part of the story. Because it's all about closing the deal, right? I mean, it's one of those things where you go, you never, it's never over until the, no, it's not that. Um, oh yeah, you don't count your chicks before, it's not really that either. It's this, you don't know the deal's done until the money's in the bank. That's what's going to happen right here in this story. That's where we left off Ruth and Boaz, who are still one restless, sleepless night away from knowing whether or not the money's in the bank. Will they be able to get married or not? Because there's one small little potential hiccup to the plan of the guardian redeemer whereby Boaz would marry Ruth. So that's where we left them last week. And uh, we want to look at how this concludes. But how did they get there? It started by Naomi concocting a plan and then ushering Ruth into action. She said to Ruth, um, Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to wash up. You're going to put on some perfume and get your best clothes on. It's date night, right? Remember that? We talked about that. And you're going to go see the man. And I wanted to make a point last week that I didn't make. And so I'm going to say it today about Ruth's advice to Naomi. And I really want to speak here to those of us who are married. Those of us maybe who have allowed the routines of life just to become a little bit too much like ruts. And maybe a bit of that specialness in our relationship with our spouse has left. There's not a lot of spice, right? And I think that Ruth's advice here is good, that we all need to realize that we have a part to play in keeping the romance in our relationships, in keeping it special and not allowing it just to become rhythms and routines and ruts and of course that takes intentionality so be romantic be kind and generous and do things that are special and dress up and look nice and smell nice that's what she told Ruth go out there date your spouse bring the spice back to your rice Naomi's plan was one of action but it ended in one of waiting When Ruth returned from meeting Boaz on the threshing floor, she had a massive load of grain on her back, and Ruth knew, I mean, Naomi knew immediately that that's a sign that this man is all in. And so she says, in essence, to Ruth, sit tight, 
Let's see how this plays out. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. <laughs> Naomi knows exactly what's going on in Boaz's mind. Now, from Boaz's perspective, uh, he can't believe that this younger woman, who most likely is a younger, beautiful woman, is um, wanting to marry him an older man. Uh, that's what's taken place the night before on the threshing floor. Um, you know, we all surmise, well, how much older was Boaz than Ruth? And the commentaries kind of try to place it between 15 and 20 years. Not sure how they conclude that. Um, but the likelihood is that he's closer to Naomi's age than he actually is to Ruth's age. But here she is. It's not Naomi lying at Boaz's feet. It's Ruth, the younger widow. And she's there because she's requesting something of him. Fulfill your duty as a relative to Naomi's deceased husband and my deceased husband. Do your duty and marry me. Ruth asked Boaz to marry her and in so doing is asking him to fulfill something that we kind of looked at last week called the uh, Leverite Law. Now the way in which this law worked was that if a woman was widowed then the brother-in-law should marry that woman to keep the family line going. And uh, in this particular case the way in which Boaz knows that Ruth is asking him to marry her and to fulfill this law is through this very unusual kind of language for us, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. We looked at that last week where it means to take refuge under the wing. So Boaz, take me, take Naomi, take us under your wing. We have no one to care for us. Both our, our spouses have died. If you will marry me and care for us, Boaz, you will be taking us under your wing. Please spread your garment over me. So we might wonder, well, is this just a duty that Boaz is fulfilling? And quite honestly, is it a duty that Ruth is fulfilling on behalf of her mother-in-law? Duty and obligation hardly feel like the right reasons to get married. But I think that we're given enough clues in this story to know that it isn't just duty, that there's actually another level to this, and it's called love. And their love for each other is genuine. They both had enough time to observe each other's character and assess who the other person is. They were equals in their own way, right? Like Boaz, yes, was a man of wealth and status. He had position, but from that position, he treated Ruth with respect. Not only out in public, where he was kind to her in the fields and provided for her and all that sort of thing, but also in private, as we see here on the threshing floor, where he, he operated in a very proper manner and said, Ruth, just be patient tomorrow. I will take care of this. And so he's a man who's respected Ruth and been kind to Ruth. But Boaz also references Ruth's um, character. The fact that we have all heard about how you left your family and everything that was familiar to you and you came to Israel and you did this for one purpose. You did that because you wanted to help your mother-in-law. You didn't want to leave her alone. So that was the first act of nobility that Boaz knew Ruth by. But then he says, you now have acted kindly in a second fashion towards me because you haven't run off after younger men, but rather you've asked me to marry you. You had options, Ruth, but you chose me. So both Ruth and Boaz are equals in their character before God, and God honors that. And I think that that's really important. You know, if you're a person who's not yet married and you're actually looking for someone who loves God, who's a person of character, and that's a good thing, you should be looking for that person. But the question that I ask you is, are you that person, right? If we are looking for that kind of person who loves God and has depth of character, then I have to ask myself, am I that person as well? Ruth probably thought of herself as that 
foreigner who was a widow, who was poor, who really had no wealth and no position, and why would anyone who did have wealth and position take care take notice of her. That was probably her mentality. And Boaz was probably thinking, well, you're younger, you're more beautiful, uh, and, and I'm older, and, and you have options for people who you could marry, so why would you ever look in my direction? It, they probably both had reasons as to why they would think the other person wouldn't look their way. But the fact is this, they both had character whereby they were trusting God with their lives and God brought them together. And I think that that is just an awesome story. And if you want the one, then you need to be the one God is at work in your life. You need to trust him. Ruth has asked Boaz to marry her and to care for all of the needs. And Boaz calculates the cost of all of this in a millisecond. And he says, deal. Um, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, for you have not run after younger men. However, he knows something Ruth doesn't know. And this is where his integrity kicks in. He knows that there is someone who is actually closer, um, more closely related to Elimelech than what he is. And that person has what's called right of first refusal. They have the right to actually be the guardian redeemer of Ruth in this situation. And so he has to take care of this matter first. It's just a small hiccup, but he wants to assure her, don't be afraid, my daughter, I will do for you all you ask. So while he can't guarantee for sure that he knows that this other man is not going to act on this Leverite law and redeem Ruth, he has every intention to make sure that she is taken care of. Don't be afraid, my daughter. I'll do it for you. I will see it through to completion. But, but if that man refuses, he also wants Ruth to know, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Like, that's what he wants. He doesn't want the other guy to take Ruth. He wants to take Ruth, but he can't control the situation. Now, have you ever had that feeling where you weren't in control of the situation? You were so close to getting what you wanted, but you just, it wasn't quite there yet. There was a potential for something to go wrong, to go in a different direction, and you're kind of just holding your breath, waiting for it to happen so that the deal is done. Uh, and that's exactly how both Ruth and Boaz are feeling, because that's the situation they're in here. I don't think Boaz slept very much that night. I mean, I think once he knew that Ruth wanted to marry him, and he also knew that there was someone closer who had that right, he was concocting a plan. I mean, he was trying to think through, how is it that tomorrow when I meet this man, this one who actually has the right and I don't, how am I going to manipulate the situation so that I get into the driver's seat? So that at the end of the day, he says no to her and she is mine. So let's see how this happens. We're in chapter 4. This is the night after the threshing floor scene, which we looked at last week when Ruth proposed to Boaz. So here we go. Meanwhile, chapter four, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab. Uh, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so. Tell me so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. Follow that. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. 
You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. That's a footnote from the narrator. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now, for sure, there are a lot of cultural elements that are taking place here uh, that we cannot fully unpack here today, but we can catch the gist of what's happening. The event takes place at the city gate because that's where these kinds of events take place. It was the place of business. It was the place of legal transaction. It was, in modern day terms, it was the court of the day. Again, we see the hidden hand of God in this story right from the get-go in that when Boaz went to the gate, that man who he was seeking to find was happen just happened to be going probably out to his field. And, and so the timing, right? God's hand in the timing that that man would be there. Um, in order for the proceedings to be legal, there needed to be 10 elders, and that's why it references the 10. I think it's pretty interesting that it seems like in short order, Boaz was able to assemble the 10 together. That might speak to the fact that he was a man of noble character. He was a man of uh, good standing amongst his community or amongst his peers. In order for these proceedings to be legal, legal they, to be legal, they had to be present. Why? Well, um, they had to represent uh, the law. They had to be the ones who would judge that this was fair and, that it had, and, and witnesses of it. In order for the proceedings to carry on, um, they needed to know the terms. And so Boaz lays out the information for the man who really doesn't know why he's being called into this meeting. Um, you're the closest guardian redeemer to the one Naomi. You know Naomi, right? Of course he knows Naomi. Everyone has heard of Naomi. She's the one who's returned from Moab. Yes, he knows her. Well, she's selling her land. Technically, no, she wasn't. She was giving the rights over for someone to purchase the land on behalf of her dead husband so that she would then have the proceeds to live on. But Naomi is offering this up. That's true. And you, the unnamed person here, we're not told who he is, have the right to do this because you're a closer brother, brother, relative to Elimelech than I am. I'm next in line, but you're first. And so if you want the land, then you can redeem it from Naomi. I will redeem it, he says. Oh, well, one more thing then. On the day that you buy that land from the Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabite. Notice how he puts this. The dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Oh, well, hold on a second here. You didn't mention that in the first part of the deal, and that really changes things here. It changes things because I like land, but I don't need another wife. Land makes me more money. Acquiring a widow costs me more money. And so this guy puts the math together pretty quick. And he says, I might endanger my own estate. So what's all going on here? You know, it's hard for us to understand why Boaz chose this course of action. And like I've said already, a lot of the elements, the cultural ones, have probably been lost in time. But what we do know is that his plan works. His plan of somehow setting this guy up to think, oh, yeah, I want the land. And then, oh, we're going to slip in one more thing on you here. It comes with a wife. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, hold on a second. Well, then I don't want the land. That's right. Hook, line, and sinker. As soon as that guy says, then I cannot redeem the land. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot do it. Boaz knows that his plan has worked. That's exactly the outcome he was looking for. You know, as I think about it, Boaz, like Naomi, these two are schemers, right? I mean, they're like working their plans, they're percolating this idea, and then they put it into action, and it works. And of course, we know that it's God who's working behind the scenes, but they're the ones that are 
concocting this idea and putting it forward, and it works. And so we kind of wonder, well, is this a good quality? Is this something we are to emulate, or is it a bad quality? Is it like, you know, all is fair in love and war? That doesn't sound very nice. Let's just say this, that when you're in love with someone, you will go to great extents to make it happen. And I think that's what we see here. We see Boaz not missing the opportunity. I remember my cousin who attended Briarcrest Bible College with me back in the uh, late 80s. Um, he liked a girl that was at school. And the only problem was that girl was dating another guy on our hall. A month after our college was out, so college gets out in April, and this was now May, there was a wedding taking place of a mutual friend in Penticton, B.C. And my cousin and myself were traveling to that wedding. Well, so was this girl who had traveled from Saskatchewan all the way to Penticton to come to this wedding, fully expecting that her boyfriend, who lived in Abbotsford, would make the trip up to Penticton just a few hours away to be able to see her for the weekend. But lo and behold, that did not happen. You see, Penticton just seemed to be a little too far away and inconvenient for the boyfriend to make it up to Penticton. Well, my cousin took full advantage of that weekend, and let's just say that the rest is history. All is fair in love and war. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is this. If you're in a dating relationship and he ain't fighting for you, let him go. You're the prize. You're not the consolation prize. No one wants to be treated as second best. Boaz knows this, and he's going for it. It's Ruth that he wants, and he's all in. There's a very curious verse here in verse 7 and 8. 7 explains verse 8. The narrator is helping us understand, helping the readers of that time, when it was written, understand uh, a law or a principle of the law that was still being enacted upon. And so it says that in earlier times, there was this way of kind of symbolizing that the transaction has happened. You take off the sandal, you give it to the person. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, you buy it, and he removes the sandal. Uh, Giving of your sandal was, it's symbolic of this, right? It's symbolic of passing the right of the guardian redeemer to the next person in line. So he didn't want it, and he passes him his sandal. Well, what does the sandal represent? To our best understanding, you know, it was the common footwear of the day, and it was a way of actually saying, this land that I would own, this land that I would walk upon with these sandals, and I'm giving up that right to this land. I take the sandal, I give it to you. That person would keep that sandal. And uh, that would be witness of the fact that they had given over the right of the Leverite law to another relative to marry, to take the land, to marry the person, and to provide for their family. So the way it would work, this Leverite law, would usually be the closest relative, a brother-in-law to the widow. Uh, If not a brother-in-law, then an uncle. If not an uncle, then a cousin, and down the line it goes. We don't know exactly where Boaz is or this other guy in that line. Here's how it's described in Deuteronomy 25. We looked at the first part last week, but I want to go to the second part today so you really get a sense of this practice in Boaz's time, where it came from historically. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. So the idea is to try to keep the marriages within the clans and not going outside. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. It's not going to be forgotten. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate, notice that, and say, my brother's husband refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. So this word, Leverite, 
is a Latin word, and it basically means brother-in-law. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So it was this negative uh, overtone there. Now, in the time of Boaz, they were no longer um, as dramatic in this situation. They weren't spitting in each other's faces, and it seems like the proceedings of a sandal being passed wasn't done with any negative aggression. It was just symbolic of the fact that the first person was passing on the right to the next person. Boaz has witnesses in these elders and the people that continue to gather at the gate as the proceedings are carrying on, people are coming around, and so the story carries on. Boaz makes a speech, he says, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his home. Today you are witnesses. Now this all sounds really good, proper, and legal, but don't miss the main thing. This guy wants Ruth. Everything else, yes, it's a blessing. Yes, it's honoring God and it's taking care of widows and all of that. Boaz loves Ruth, bottom line. The elders of the town, they all agree and they say, we are witnesses. And then they bless Boaz and they want him and Ruth to marry and their family to increase. And, that, and they kind of say their blessing like this. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So there's some names and situations in there I don't necessarily expect everyone to know, but I'll just simply say that the names Rachel and Leah are attached to Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From Rachel and Leah, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, and so these are very important uh, matriarchal figures in Israel because they're the ones through whom the 12 tribes came, Judah being one of those 12. And so basically they're just say, simply saying, may God bless you, and multiply your family. But then they reference this other person named Perez. And we might wonder, well, why is his name here and seems to be even more significant than the name of Judah? I mean, Judah was the one through whom the line of King David and the Messiah would come. Why isn't it kind of making more of Judah? And the reason there, which I had to go and read about to find out, because I always wondered myself, is that Perez was kind of like the patriarchal figure of Bethlehem. It was the people of Bethlehem came from him. And so they're honoring the person who's established their line as well as, you know, connecting it to Judah. But the part I love the most is right there in the middle where it says, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Because it's almost like, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> like, you have no idea how famous you will make this small little town that was really insignificant. Other than the fact that one day the king of Israel, David, would come, born in that area of Bethlehem, and this would be known as the city of David, right? And eventually, the Messiah. The very one that Israel's hope hung on would come from Bethlehem. And so we know the story well, the Christmas story in Luke 2. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, 
to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So there you just see this incredible connection. Jesus born in Bethlehem, the line of David, and all of that kind of works together. That's what God is doing in this story, okay? The, the, the theme from God's perspective is that he is preserving the line of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Let's finish the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he had made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son! Exclamation mark. Like this is celebrative. And they named him Obed. Sounds like the whole town got together. <laughs> named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Those are names we know. Now, God blesses Ruth and Naomi with this child, Obed, which means servant of the Lord, or servant of God. And, and he is a blessing, right? He's a blessing to Ruth and Boaz. He's a blessing to Naomi. Uh, he's a blessing to the town, and he's really ultimately a blessing to God. He's God's gift. Because we've seen the hand of God as he's weaved together this story to accomplish again his plans and purposes. Remember we were talking about providence the last couple of weeks? God preserving the lineage of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that's all part of this love story. It's all part of the unlikely character of Ruth who was a foreigner who's brought into Israel and whom God uses in the lineage of his Savior for the world. Naomi's curse has turned to blessing. Naomi's emptiness that she saw the hand of God against her now is full and sees the hand of God for her. Naomi takes Obed in her arms and she cares for them, for him. Think just how special that grandmother-grandson relationship must have been. Um, you know, she was probably already kind of looking around, checking out what other potential suitors were being born at that time, making her plans for Obed as well. But what we do know is that Obed did marry, and he had children, and he was in the line of Christ. So let's just, at the end of this uh, chapter 4, there's this uh, short genealogy laid out, just trying to show from Perez to David, and Obed's right in there. Uh, so per Perez has a son, Hezron, and Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, uh, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, uh, Salmon, Boaz, Boaz, Obed, that's our man, then Jesse, then David. So what we see here is that Obed is the grandfather to David, and Ruth is the great-grandmother to King David. Matthew shows, though, where this fits in, in the entire lineage of Christ. And we're not going to go through all these names, but I just want to show that Matthew 1 starts off by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you get these really significant names. Son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. Okay? Jesus the Messiah. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac Jacob, and so on and so, so on and so forth. And you will see in here those same names we just read at the end of the book of Ruth, right? Landing with King David. So the first part of Matthew kind of takes you to there. Then it goes on a whole section that I'm not going to cover. I want to get to the last little bit where it comes to Jesus. So you just have to imagine if you went to Matthew 1 where you're reading all of these generations. After the exile in Babylon... Uh, after they come out, then it goes again, listing these generations, and it goes from Eleazar 
to Methan, from Methan to Jacob, from Jacob to Joseph, who is a husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And all I'm trying to do here is to show to you that while we're reading a love story and there's a human level of that and there's this beautiful element of redemption, there's a whole other stratosphere of how God is working and operating and is filled with multiple lessons that we can learn from this story, from the incredible grace of God to his incredible providence to carry out plans and purposes that go way beyond our own understanding. The people at the time had no idea when they said, oh, blessed would you be that here in Bethlehem you're going to be known. They had no clue that they would be the city, the town through whom the Messiah Jesus would eventually come. The story of Ruth and Boaz is a love story, but it's also a love story of God's love for us. Ruth was a foreigner. She had no standing before Boaz, but he redeemed her. We too are foreigners to God in the sense that we are outside of his holiness. We're born into darkness and through faith we're brought into the kingdom of light. That is God redeeming us and buying us back. Jesus, like Boaz, is our guardian redeemer. That's the point. Each of these characters teaches something about who God is, teaches something about God's plan of salvation. In this particular case, we look at Boaz and we go, oh, Jesus is the greater Boaz. Jesus is the glorified Boaz. Jesus is the one who redeems all of mankind. He's a Jewish man of standing who marries a Gentile bride, and Jesus is a Jewish son of God. Human like us, but the son of God like God come into the world to do what? to take for himself a bride made up of Jews and Gentiles. And maybe we could even say predominantly Gentiles. And so we have this picture of Jesus the groom and the church the bride. And we have Boaz and Ruth. So we have the groom and the bride. And we just see all of these layers of God trying to tell us about his story of salvation for us. Ruth is a picture of who we are. Boaz is a picture of who Jesus is. Boaz it cost him a lot. Sacrifice, money, maybe even reputation to those who didn't know that he married a Moabite. Boaz had a price to pay to be the guardian redeemer of Ruth. That was nothing compared to what our guardian redeemer was willing to pay for our salvation. It was his very life. He gave his life for us. And 1 Peter 1.18 makes that point. Peter says to those believers, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And he, he's just referencing the fact that um, you weren't purchased by money, you weren't purchased by religious system. Well, how were you purchased? Well, you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's the story. That's the point of Ruth and Boaz, of what God wants to accomplish, and what God has done for each of us. The blood of Jesus, his very life, was shed that your life might be purchased. The question I'm asking is, do you know the love of your Redeemer and that love that he has for you? Do you know it personally? Because I think that if we can get inside the head and the heart of Boaz and realize what he was thinking and what he was feeling for his love for Ruth, that he would go to any extent to marry Ruth. It would cost him money and sacrifice. If we understand that on a human level, can't we understand what it means for Jesus, the Son of God, to love us by giving his life for us? 
And I, I want us to land here because I think it's one of our greatest challenges is really believing that God loves me like that. I think far more common is we feel and sense the hand of God against us like Naomi did. Look at the bad stuff in my life. Look at all the sin that I have done in my life. How could God ever love me? No, that message of love, that message of Jesus dying on the cross and doing it out of love is for others but not for me. I believe this is one of our greatest challenges because we're so aware of our own unworthiness. And it's true. We are unworthy. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. You see, we view ourselves often through the standard of the world which says you are insignificant. The world says that there is no God. The world says that you came from nothing. And the world says that life has no meaning. But God's word tells us differently. He says that we are made in his image. He says that he knit us together. There's an intimacy in the way in which God has made each and every one of us. And there's no mistakes. God's word tells us that he loves us so much that even when we strayed from him, he had a plan where his son would come into the world, would go to that cross, would die. Why? To pay for sin. His own? No. Mine. Yours. We are the ones that he had in mind when he went to the cross. And when he did that, he did it for us as an expression of the love of God because he wanted to buy back humanity to be in right relationship with God. Yes, the world would be right that we are insignificant except for the fact that God says, I have chosen you to be significant. The psalmist who says, who is humanity that you're mindful of them? You know, an honest answer to that question would be nothing. We are nothing. We are insignificant. We're just Poor, widowed, foreigners with no money, no position, no power, and nothing to offer. But the same verse that asks the question, who are we? Also gives us the same answer that says, but God is mindful of us. And the fact that God is mindful of us is the very point. In fact, I'll read for you the psalm, at least verse 4 and 5. What is mankind? Who is humanity that you, God, are mindful of them? Ah, but you've made them a little lower than the angels and you've crowned them with glory and honor. Not because we deserve it, but because that's the way God has done it. We bear his mark. And he is the one who loved us so much that when we strayed from him, by our actions of sin, we stray from him. And he took care of how to purchase us back. He was our guardian redeemer. He said, be still. Just wait. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. That's what Jesus did, right? He took care of what I could not take care of for myself. So don't ever think that you're a nobody. Don't ever think that the hand of God is against you. But rather, like Ruth and Naomi, turn to God. Realize he is your one who is your only provider in life. Especially as it relates to salvation. Ruth and Naomi came to know the hand of God is for them. And we can too. Know that... His love for you has been demonstrated through the life of his son, Jesus, and it came at the highest cost possible. If we're looking at a human level, I mean, to lose money or to pay money or to sacrifice time or to sacrifice energy, that's all on one level. But to give one's life, to give one's life for another, is there a higher price that one could, be, that one could pay? No. Why do we doubt then the love of God toward us? Once we understand that message, then we desire to live for him. Jesus is our guardian redeemer. Do you know his love for you? Because your redeemer lives and he loves you. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this beautiful love story of Ruth and Boaz. We also see it as a story of redemption on a human level. All of these laws that came into place and people carrying out their particular right or opportunity. But we know that there's a bigger picture here. You're trying to tell us something. You're trying to tell us that Ruth matters as much as Boaz or anyone else. You're trying to tell us that you're up to good. You're trying to tell us that you have plans and purposes for us that we need to trust you. We need to trust you with our lives. And you're trying to tell us that your plan was for Jesus Christ to come into this world, that he, the Son of God, would go to that cross, that he would die there and pay for the price of sin of all of humanity, that we might be freed from it, forgiven of our sins, placed in your family, made right with you. God, sometimes it's just simply hard to believe that you love me that much, that you love each of us that much. So for the person today that's listening to this, if they have never, never understood that and never trusted in you, I pray today, pray today, Lord, that they would sense that's the love you have for them, so much so that you gave your life through your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray to this end, in his name, amen. Well, God bless you and thank you for joining us. And again, next week is a special week in the life of our church as we uh, honor Rob and Diana Schaff. And so if you want to join us for the barbecue, it's going to start at 1130. It'll be outside if that's helpful. Uh, come and enjoy. And um, by all means, participate in the appreciation fund for them as well. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about our church, head over to sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.